Welcome to Changing Lenses. I'm on a personal journey to explore how we can make our world more inclusive and compassionate and our lives more fulfilling and sustainable. Along the way, I've been meeting some amazing Canadians doing amazing things. By listening to their stories and experiences, I hope we will change our lens to see from a more inclusive perspective and be inspired to build a better world. I'm your host, Rosie Young, and I invite you to join me as we change our lenses together. Because changing our lens changes what we see. And when we see differently, we can live differently. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Changing Lenses. Today, we'll be talking to Katie Gore, a certified speech-language pathologist and the founder and principal of Speech IRL, a consulting firm which helps organizations create culture change through communication. Katie grew up in Canada and currently lives in the U.S., where she is the founder of the Chicago chapter of the National Stuttering Association and chair of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force for the Illinois Speech-Language Hearing Association, among other volunteer roles. Katie is also a fan of Marvel Comics, and she actually reads them, not just watches the movies like I do. So Katie, welcome, and thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. Awesome. So today, we'll be chatting with Katie about inclusion and discrimination around speech and language which is related but not specific to race or gender. Now, when you think about discrimination in the workplace, how people talk might not be the first thing that comes to mind. Definitely, it wasn't for me. Katie has lots of insights and experience to share about this. So if this is a new area for you too, I think you'll be interested to hear what she has to say. But before we really dive in, there's something I want to say to our guests and listeners on every episode. Talking about inclusion and discrimination is very sensitive, and I want you, Katie, to feel safe and comfortable to be yourself, to be honest, and to be authentic. Some of what we discuss might be challenging for you to say and for our listeners to hear, but I really want us to have an open and genuine conversation. So I commit to you and our listeners to be respectful, to be kind, and to be honest and authentic myself. And I also invite you to call me out if I say anything inappropriate and correct me if I use the wrong language. And I commit that the foundation of our discussion is to raise awareness and lift people up, not to gossip or bring people down. So Katie, will you accept my commitment to you? Absolutely. Thank you. So now that we have laid some of the groundwork for this, let's get started. Uh, and I want to say again, just how grateful I am for you being here today as actually my very first guest ever on this podcast. Uh, I am fascinated by the work that you do and uh, just the, the whole topic. So I have so many questions for you, which we might not get to, but let's just start off easy. So I gave a little bit about your bio in the introduction, and to be totally honest, I didn't really know half of what I was saying. So can you just start us off by telling us a bit more about what you do and what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, um, my background, my training is as a speech-language pathologist. And so um, Speech IRL, when it was first founded, was and is a speech therapy practice. And most people, when they think of speech therapy, they think of, you know, small children who are struggling to communicate or speak or perhaps older adults who have had a stroke or some sort of medical condition later on in their life that we associate with old age. 
And that is true for the vast majority of folks who work in this field. The work that we do at Speech IRL is focused specifically on professionals. So often our our younger folks tend to be in college or maybe late high school, and then going into early career, mid-career, and late career. And we work with people who may have a diagnosed speech or communication challenge, so something like stuttering or having a lisp or um, having challenges with something like um, attention deficit or autism or something. They just feel like they always had a hard time communicating and they feel like there's a reason why, but never got an official diagnosis. Um, And then we also work with people who don't identify as having any diagnosis, but you know, just want to improve their communication. So that might fall into more of the traditional bucket of executive presence. Um, So that's how we started. And we bring our speech therapy skills there. But then over time, what we do as a practice has evolved. And the reason it evolved for me personally was because um, I spent a lot of time working with very intelligent, very ambitious, very capable professionals who had a communication disorder of some kind. Stuttering is one of our big specialties. It's one of my personal personal passion points, but a variety of others as well. And, you know, these folks would come in and work so hard on doing everything they can to get there, you know, to be the best communicator they could be. But often that means embracing some element of yourself that is different from other people. So we take a really heavy neurodiversity approach to the way that we do our work, which really means understanding and accepting that people are wired differently. The term neurodiversity sort of started in the autism community, but it can be applied a little more broadly as well. So, you know, at a very simple level, you could think of it like left-handed and right-handed, right? Some people are left-handed, some people are right-handed. And we used to live in a society where if you were left-handed, we punished you and we perhaps even physically beat you until you learned to use your right hand. And then as society, we got to a point where like, or we could just let people use their left hand and that would be fine. And that's an extremely simple example of a type of neurodiversity. But this could apply for the way you think, the way you perceive the world, the way you hear, the way you communicate, the way you emotionally process, all of those are part of it. Anyway, so working with folks like this who would work so hard to do everything they could to fit in, but also trying to understand and be authentic to who they are. Like, this is how my body needs to communicate. This is how my brain needs to process. This is what I need to do to move through the world. And that's great if you can come to peace with all those things. But then if you are in an environment, in an environment that refuses to also acknowledge and accept you for who you are, you are not going to make any progress. And so I got really, really frustrated seeing all of these wonderful clients that I worked with who would work so hard on their communication and were fabulous communicators, but there just might have been one little piece about them that was slightly different than the way most other people communicated, and they would be completely shut out from professional opportunities, social opportunities in some cases as well. And so that really drove me to see, okay, can we go in above the glass ceiling? and start to put some chips in it from the top, as opposed to having people stand underneath it one by one. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm really passionate about teaching self-advocacy, but there's a certain point at which like you shouldn't have to self-advocate and other people need to just get on board. Yeah. Um, So that sort of is how we got into, you know, what now falls into the diversity, equity and inclusion bucket. It wasn't that I was intentionally trying to go there. It just, it, it naturally falls in there. Um, And then from, then from being in that space, all the intersectionality that comes out of that, now I found myself having other conversations about things that aren't always related to communication, um, but I always tend to come at it from a communication lens. So on a day-to-day basis, I see a couple of individual clients still. I do a lot of facilitation and conversation work, you know, developing trainings. I teach speech pathologists and try to sort of infuse this more social model of disability or neurodiversity model of 
approaching communication versus a medical model where it's like, oh, you have a diagnosis, so we need to fix you so that you can be like everyone else. Mm-hmm. So I'm, my schedule is all over the place, but um, I'm, I'm very, very thankful that I get to do what I do. It's, it's a lot of fun. And, and I'm constantly learning new things and talking with people who have had experiences that I didn't even know existed. So I'll, I'll stop there. Okay, there's so much there already that I want to just dig into. Um, so, okay, so let me just pick up on uh, what you said around neurodiversity, because when you say that, I mean, I'm no medical person, but I just think brain, but you're using neurodiversity in the context of speaking, which I would have just been like, that's, that's your mouth or, you know, verbal stuff, right? So, so how, what is the link between neurodiversity and our speech and communication? Yeah, that is a great question. So yeah, neurodiversity really refers to um, the unique wiring of your brain, which both impacts how you perceive and take in the world around you from a sensory standpoint, and then how your brain puts information together. And then based on how that information is put together, how you behave in return, right? So how you speak, how you walk, how you make choices in your life, uh, what you think is interesting, what you think isn't interesting, all of that. And so very broadly, you know, you could think of neurodiversity as sort of the sum collective of your cognitive experiences, your emotional experiences, your yeah, thoughts and emotions, and your, your physical experiences. Speech is one part of those, or the way we talk is part of that. So communication is a very cognitive process, right? Because you have to think about the place that you're in, you have to think about the people you're talking to, you have to think about your knowledge of the conversation that's going on, and all the words that are associated with that, all of the emotions that are associated with that, you know, how comfortable you feel with the topic, you have to put that into words, and speak it out. And then there's all these nonverbal elements as well, like your tone of voice while you're doing it, your body language while you're doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, matching the level of what you're saying to the perceived level of the people that you're talking to, right? You know, know your audience, speak to your audience, right? Yeah. Um, So communication is a very, very, I mean, it is a brain based process. Um, That's also very much colored by our emotions, right? When we're very emotional about something, it it very much impacts the way we communicate about it. Um, Okay. So I don't know if that answers. So, well, um, so let's just to try to make it understandable for people like me, (laughs) who is not uh, deeply familiar with the the topic, because when I mean, I guess when I think about speech therapy, the, the only thing or the first thing that comes to mind is like that example, you know, the King's speech. That movie that came out about one of the English kings in the 19th or 20th century somewhere who had a very severe stutter, but he needed to make public speeches. And so, I mean, one of my takeaways right now is that there's, I'll call them problems because I don't know what to call them, that people want to fix to make, I guess, just self-improvement as well as to genuinely make themselves more understandable. And actually on that point, because I do want to be respectful in my language, is there a term for that? Like I've been using speech impediment, but I feel like that's a very disabling term. Like what would you call a speech problem that needs to be cured if, if there's such a thing? Yeah, you know, I think there isn't within the speech community, I think, an agreed upon like this is what we should call it. So certainly, yeah, pe- you know, we can react, have rectally, oh, it doesn't feel right to call it a problem. I know a lot of people in the speech community who still use the word speech impediment or they'll say I have a speech impediment because that is a word that is generally understood. And so they find it a very practical word to use, you know, speech issue, speech challenge, speech difference, if you're trying to be, you know, sort of more on the neurodiversity side. But the thing is, the differences can lead to problems, not because the person themselves or the difference itself is a problem, but it can create these breakdowns. And so problem is a word that, you know, we use a lot in our office, because the person who has the speech difference is experiencing many problems. 
And so it can be a shorthand for that. So I would say for the purposes of our conversation, use whatever word feels most true for the context. And yeah, if you're talking about, you know, in, in the movie, the king had a lot of speech problems. He encountered a lot of problems because of his speech. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think myself okay. and my speech folks would all be like, you're cool. But it's, it's okay. a meta thing to be aware of. Yeah. Okay. So what would be a difference, I guess, um, for, you know, just encountering it everyday life? So let me, I'll, let me think about um, my work experience, where I'm a, I'm a smaller person, I'm under five feet tall. I think that also means my lungs are probably smaller than other people. And something I encountered a lot when I was speaking in meetings or doing small presentations, we're not talking hundreds of people, maybe 10 or 30 people at the most. People would often be telling me, speak up, Rosie, we can't hear you. And they would also, and I think in terms of speech patterns, they would also say, Rosie, you speak too quickly, make sure you slow down. But to me, that was just my natural way of speaking. And so is that, I mean, is that an example maybe of neurodiversity where I would have to change inherently who I am or how I naturally talk to suit someone else? I can understand why it would be beneficial to my listener, but if I didn't have to change it, I I wouldn't because that's just kind of how I am. Yeah. So I don't know if you realize, but like that question you just asked is like the crux of the conversations that we have all the time. Because so so both of those patterns that you described, the speaking too fast, um, and we're speaking too quietly. Those are very common things that someone might come to us to work on because they've received that feedback. And that question you just posed of like, well, is this my problem or is this a listener's problem? And like, right. you know, maybe they should just pay more attention or like go get the hearing <laughs> checked or something, you know, <laughs> <Is> it closer. <laughs> yes. I tell my mom that all the time. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> um, you know, there are modifications that they could make perhaps to be to be more easily heard by you. Mm. And one of the things that is interesting with speech and voice is it's not it's not like race like you can change the way you talk and you can change it to varying degrees but just because you can should you and ultimately sort of how you how someone parses that out is a very personal question and i think particularly for professionals and professionals who um, you know, maybe are very passionate about issues like, you know, diversity and, and equity and things like that. It's a really loaded question because we do want to be accepted the way we are and we want other people to be accepted the way they are. Yeah. But in a workplace setting, you know, there's the whole sort of bring your whole self to work. But sometimes I'm like, well, that's not totally true because I don't show up to work in my pajamas. I mean, I do now because it's a pandemic, but right. yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm wearing a sort of clean shirt. So <laughs> um, so, so, you know, we do modify things about ourselves when we step into the professional environment, right? And we, we choose to elevate certain features of ourselves because we want to be seen a certain way. Yes. But then there's also things that are very core to our being that we also want to be welcome in the workplace and to be accepted in the workplace. And the way you talk can fall into either one of those camps. It could be something that you choose to modify so that you are seen a certain way, or it could be something that feels really core to who you are. Or it could be kind of in the middle. And so often what we do in our work is we like to take the approach of building people's flexibility in the way they communicate. Because it can be very limiting if you only have one way to talk. And you might feel like like that is the core of who you are. But then you might, you know, just because I would like us to live in a better world, but like we live in the world as it is now. And so that might not give you access to certain opportunities. And so having the flexibility to choose to step into that space. I mean, it's essentially code switching, right? 
Giving yourself the ability to code switch doesn't mean you should, doesn't mean you have to. And if you do choose to, you know, should be very conscious of what you're doing and all the layers there. But it's good to have the ability to do that, just to have that option available to you. And so, you know, sometimes we'll work with clients where they'll say, I want the ability to do this. You know, we've, we have clients who come in who say, you know, I'm black and I want to sound less black so I can go to work. And that's, you know, I'm a white person. I'm like, okay, I uh, feel like there's a lot going on here to talk about. Um, so you're saying that's what you want to learn. And I can teach you that skill. But uh, there's a lot of context that, you know, might be good to explore as you're going about wanting to learn this extra dialect, essentially. Um, yeah. So, I, yeah, I want to pick up on that because um, I've heard, I think there was actually a movie that came out recently, which I can't remember what it's called, but it was kind of a parody about exactly that, where there is a black man who is at a call center. Do you remember the, do you remember the movie I'm talking about? Yes. And it's on my list. I, I'm so bad at watching movies. Yeah, um, me too. Oh. Yeah. It'll, it'll okay. come to us and we'll both just randomly yell it out later in the episode. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Something like I, thank you for your, or apologize for, I don't remember. Okay. Sorry. I'm going to stop guessing. But, it was about a black man uh, on a call center and wasn't that successful until he turned his voice into a white sounding voice. And it, I'm not black, but I sort of intuitively knew what they were talking about, about changing the way you sound to make yourself more appealing, even though you shouldn't have to. So it's interesting what you said about, I guess, employees coming to you and saying, I want to sound less black. I do want to hear more about that. Like, Is that even possible? What does that mean? But also, do you ever get employers? Because I would think that would be really wrong for them to do that. But do they ever come to you and say, e, this person doesn't sound professional enough, or I don't know how they couch it, but really what they mean is they sound too black. So I, yeah, I haven't had any referrals from employers saying, you, yes, and the words they would use is you don't sound professional enough, quote unquote, um, where it's been clearly like, no, you sound too black. Mm. The one we most commonly get where it is an employer-initiated referral uh, that the employee goes along with because they're the ones who have to contact us, but is most typically young women. And it's young women who are told, you know, essentially that they sound too feminine or they don't sound professional enough. They need to sound more authoritative. You know, you're really great at your job, but nobody will take you seriously in a presentation. Mm -hmm. So go change the way you talk. And then the other one is also the one that you mentioned about not being loud enough, not being heard enough. Um, and, and we do get referrals from both men and women for that, um, you know, men who are very soft spoken as well. Mm -hmm. So, so, gosh, there's a lot to dig in there too. And and I've heard that, and I would agree that I think that speaking isn't or shouldn't really be specific to race. But I do feel like there's patterns that um, can turn into stereotypes. And for example, speaking as a small Asian woman, I worked at a professional accounting firm with other small Asians, most of whom are small Asian women. And I think there was a not taking us too seriously, mostly because of the way we looked, because we were petite, you know, we were young, and Asians, again, stereotypically, they look younger than they even really are. So we already looked even younger. And then add to that, if we have maybe cute sounding voices, I'll say, or not loud, projecting white male voices. Now, I think this was 20 years ago when I first started working there. Now I kind of feel like, well, do we have to sound like, you know, deep voiced white men with really projecting voices in order to be executive? Like, can we not have little voices and still sound executive? Or isn't that an old paradigm? In your professional opinion, or in what you're seeing as patterns, how much do people really do need to change their voices in order to be accepted or 
be taken seriously these days? Yeah. So that is a big question. And there's, there's a direction. I think the general answer to it sort of goes in one direction. And then the specific thing about what you said about sort of the little voices or the, the deep voices, there's another angle at work there that I want to comment on. Okay. So maybe I'll comment on the specific angle first, and then I'll come back to the general question. Sure. So yeah, one of the fascinating things about the voice, particularly in terms of what most people would associate with pitch, right? High, low, um, you know, or loud, quiet. There is a very sort of primal biological mechanism going on there. So we actually have a workshop that we do. We have a three-hour workshop on this called Voice, Gender, Power, and Professionalism, where we get into this topic. And this gets down to very structural aspects of acoustic, like physics and acoustics, and how we register those sounds. So just in the world that we're in, think about the types of things that make really big, deep, booming sounds. Mm -hmm. And then think about the kinds of things that make like high-pitched, quiet sounds. Okay. The things that make the big sounds are generally more threatening. And if you, you know, hear a noise like that, it, it causes your body to have a certain reaction. And this is just, you know, this is not a voice in particular. This is just environmental noises. Right. It's going to arrest your attention in a certain way. It's going to cause you to react in a certain way and pay attention in a certain way. Versus if you hear like a little squeak, you know, you, you react to that very differently, right? Um, and so this is something for, I'm, I'm going to talk about men and women here, which is a binary, but I'm, I'm going to use that or sort of male and female would be more accurate, um, sort of a shorthand for the, the structural vocal mechanism that exists in the throat. Okay. So males have, lar- you know, they have larger vocal tracts, so they make deeper sounds typically. And then women, females have smaller ones, so you get more higher pitch sounds, just like, you know, that's why a cello and a violin sound different, right? The cello is larger, you get a bigger, deeper sound. And so for women in the workplace with higher pitch noises, it's absolutely true that people implicitly, unconsciously respond differently to these lower male voices versus these higher female voices. But that's really consistent with how we respond to noises in that pitch and volume range generally in the world. And it is not, frankly, physically possible for females who have small little vocal tracts to talk like James Earl Jones. <laughs> it physically cannot be done. Um, but so the flip side there is it doesn't mean that females should have to be relegated to, you know, being perceived as a kitten or a mouse or something like something in that same vocal category, just because we sound a certain way. So that's where I think things like implicit bias training is so important is to recognize like, okay, I have a very petite coworker who has sort of maybe a petite voice, if you could call it that. And when I hear her voice, and even if I have done all the training in the world and everything, my brain is just going to process it a certain way because that's how my brain, that's a, a human brain and even a lot of animal brains process those sounds. So what can I do to overcome that implicit reaction that I have? You know, and this same thing applies for, you know, tall people and short people, right? Things that are larger than you are more intimidating. So you're going to pay more attention to them. Things that are smaller than you are less intimidating. So you're not going to feel the same threat and sort of automatic response to attention. But that doesn't mean that you should re- only respect your tall coworkers and not respect the coworkers that are smaller in stature than you. I kind of got on a tangent there. No, that's really good. Okay, let's talk about something that Speech IRL offers as a service too. Because my brain is also going to, when you just talk about the, the human anatomy or physiology part of it, I was like, well, threatening doesn't sound good. So 
shouldn't I actually then be intimidated or scared? And that you would think that would be actually a potentially a negative trait for a male voice. But a lot of times it's actually desired to have like in sales or, you know, these things that maybe it's because it commands power. So it turns into a positive thing. But I also see how um, it gets used against women, not just because or females, not just because they aren't taken as seriously necessary. But if there's a situation where it's like, oh, we need a gentler person or a gentler tone to go in and, you know, massage things through, let's send that woman in because, you know, they'll they'll not be as intimidated by her. So it seems like it's being treated as a positive thing, but it actually really isn't in a way because they're saying, well, like she's not threatening, meaning she doesn't exude power. She doesn't come across as, you know, I think maybe as smart, right? Or as executive as someone else. And so we'll put her into the soft situations and we'll send the man into, you know, the tougher situations because they can handle it. And I never really thought about how, just basic physiology could get to that point. But I mean, is that kind of an interpretation of what you're saying the result could be from just the male and female anatomy? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why, you know, and that's why these things are hard when it comes to communication, because the way we communicate is influenced by the bodies that we have. It's influenced by the vocal tract you have, by how tall you are, by the wiring that you have in your brain, you know, and that's why we get personalities and all of these things. And so in the workplace culture that we have, historically and both presently, certain types of communication styles and communication abilities, which could be, you know, having a certain pitch or a certain tone, have been prized over others or seen as more powerful. And so a lot of the work that we do is talking about power, which is, I mean, such a complicated and interesting phenomenon. But how can you create that with what you've been given? And so for some people, yes, you know, in a really Historic paradigm being powerful meant being loud, it meant being scary, it meant dominating the room and not letting other people talk. But, you know, I think increasingly in the business culture, there's an understanding that that's not really not the best way to lead and manage. And there's more appreciation for a lot of different ways of communicating power. And for some people, what works is having a loud voice and being the biggest person in the room. And some people exude power by being very quiet and by speaking very rarely. But when they do speak up, everybody pays attention to them. And so that's a really important thing when you're, if you are exploring something about the way you speak, to understand, you know, what have I been given? What is, what is possible for me to do and to achieve? And what can I flex to really own the kind of power that makes sense for me to have in a way that, that has the effect on other people that I want it to? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I want to kind of segue off of that one, but talk about gendered communication therapy that SpeechRL provides. And when I was reading about it on your website, I thought it was fascinating. I could see some very good reasons to do it. But, you know, to be honest, it was a trigger for me because why should anyone, and I'm thinking in particular transgender people, why should anyone feel forced to or want to change their voice? So can you maybe talk just a bit about what that service is and also what are some of the the reasons that people have given you who've come asking for your help with this? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I will preface this by saying this is not an area of clinical specialty for me. So um, we have a couple other specialists at our practice who this is all they do. So I will speak high level to it. But if there are folks listening to this who like know a lot more about it, I would love the correction. So Michelle, you can call me out. It's my coworker. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so at a very basic level, where people will typically seek this out is a case of a person who is transitioning binary gender, so male to female or female to male. Most commonly, we see female to male. So a person who was assigned female at birth, and then they're transitioning to male. 
And that's because going back to the thing about vocal physiology, even if you're taking hormone replacement therapy and things like that, if you were assigned male at birth and have a sort of a large male vocal tract, the sorts of therapies that a person or medical interventions a person might have to affirm their gender does not change the size of the vocal tract. And so you'll have, um, or sorry, yeah, male to female, I think I might have been going backwards there. But um, so if you were assigned male at birth, and you're transitioning to female, your voice might still sound very, very, very male. And so the person feels that the way they speak is not consistent and not congruent with their gender. And so they seek therapy to behaviorally learn to modify their voice so that their voice matches who they are as a person and is authentic to them. Another reason people might do it is they identify as non-binary or gender fluid, and they want to have that flexibility. So again, maybe I was assigned male at birth, and so I have this very deep male-sounding voice, and so I get clocked as a man because I sound like a male, and I want to be able to adjust the way I speak so that I can sort of show my my non-binariness, or if I'm you know fluid, or you know sort of show different aspects on different days, however I want to do it. Um, so it's really again just to give people more flexibility and more access to the identity that they have, and making sure that what is coming out of their mouth is showing the world who they really are and who they really want to be seen as. Okay, that's actually helpful for me because I. You know, my first reaction when I thought about it was, it doesn't seem fair to people to feel like, again, if it was a perfect fantasy world, no one would need to do that because they would just be accepted as they are and they wouldn't need to sound more male or more female. But I could also see like if if someone did change their gender to be who more true to who they think they really are, but their physiology just didn't you know match with that, then it's actually it's could you say maybe it is a good thing for them because then they are getting the help to transform into who they think their authentic self is by being able to also speak more like who they think they really are. Is that, is that some of the motivation? Absolutely. Yeah. So it, it is a very, you know, I, I've met a couple of the folks that come to our practice and I will say, you know, the voice work for individuals who are exploring gender or, or are transitioning gender, the voice work can, for some people, right? Everyone who, who goes through this process, it sort of values different things, but um, the voice work can be a tremendously foundational cornerstone to that personal journey for them. Mm. And because it is so much of the way we sound, like even think about when you're on the phone with someone, like, you know, if you just hear the sound, hello, you can draw some conclusions about who the person is that you're talking to just from the sound, the timber, the pitch, the speed of that hello. And actually another area where this shows up is there's something called puberphonia, which is for cisgender males but their voice does not drop during puberty. And so even as a grown adult, they will sound prepubescent or will sound like a a woman is is how a lot of people perceive that. And so I've had a couple of those clients and they'll say, you know, I'm so tired of when I have to call my bank. And they say, you know, how are you, Mrs. Smith? Because I'm Mr. Smith. And it's just from that sound. So the way we speak, whether we want it to or not, gives people a lot of information about us. And so it's really about making sure that the information my voice and my speech is giving out is the information that I want people to have. Okay. So some of our listeners might be wondering if physiologically our vocal cords are built a certain way so it emits a certain sound. I'm also curious about what the therapy looks like to do that. But just for the sake of time and trying to stay on topic, maybe we'll do that in another episode someday. So I just want to kind of acknowledge that might be out there, but I'm going to try to stay with a sort of an inclusion um, and equity lens about this topic. So let's go back to talking about how it might affect different racialized people. And in particular, I want 
touch on one of the other specialty practices for speech RIL, which is articulation therapy. And the way it's described, I guess, on your website, it talks about working on accents and I'm guessing like different tones as well. I do want to get to sort of the trigger point of being articulate that I think we've been hearing a lot in the media, particularly from people who are Black and Indigenous and how they have have received discrimination using that word articulate. But let's just start with what is articulation therapy that speech RL provides? Great question. And one thing that's funny about this word is, so the word articulation to a speech therapist means the complete opposite of what it means to everybody else in the world. Mm. So when we say, you know, oh, someone is so articulate, we typically mean, you know, they have a large vocabulary, they speak in very well-formed sentences. It's a lot about their grammar and their vocabulary and, and that sort of thing. When speech pathologists talk about articulation, we are talking about physically how you form the sounds. So articulation therapy specifically refers to, you know, are you making crisp sounds? So someone who has a lisp and wants to work on their lisp, that would fall under articulation therapy. Or, um, you know, kids who can't say, and adults, um, but, you know, kids who say wabbit, that would fall under articulation therapy. We teach them how to say R, which is a really hard thing to teach. So that's why accent typically falls under there as well, because uh, if someone has an accent and they would like to work on it, what they're working on is reshaping very specific aspects of the way they're making certain sounds. Got it. Okay. So so that makes a lot of sense. And I knew there was something that would probably be very technical about it. And that's why I wanted to make sure I understood what, what that meant. So let's talk about accents for a bit, because I think especially in a country like Canada, which is very multicultural, and you have people from all different countries, they would say they speak English. And I know people from countries that they're official language in that country is English, but how they speak English is different from the North American English. So, you know, very common example that would just be British or Australian. I actually had the privilege of traveling to Australia earlier this year before Corona happened. And for the most part, I could understand what they were saying. But, you know, there were a couple of times I wanted to close captions on the people that I met with just because like, I'm not really sure what that word. Oh, okay, that's what you meant to say. So in this spirit of inclusion and acceptance, I was kind of struggling with this. What did, what's your thoughts on how much should people really be trying to change their accent to an American or a Canadian setting or whatever country that they're in versus everyone around them also trying to do some work to understand their, quote, accent better? Yeah, this is, this is such, again, a complex and layered question that I love. So on a very basic level, most of the folks who would call us to work on their accent, it's because they want to do it. When I first started, I did have a few folks who were referred by employers. But I think, again, as more sort of awareness of inclusion and equity has come around, it's like, okay, maybe we shouldn't do that. So at the most basic level, the first reason someone might want to do it is if they are frequently being misunderstood, which is exhausting both for the speaker and for the listener. And if it's because they're not a native speaker in that language, you know, they've already worked really hard to learn the language. And that even though it is a lot of work, it's like, okay, well, I'm used to working on this language. And so now I'll just do this extra level just in the same way that I continue to learn vocabulary, I'm going to continue to refine the way that I pronounce things. On the receiving end, though, it's like, okay, but how much of that does the person have to do or should the person have to do? And this is where it gets really, really complicated and dicey and does tell you so much about the environment and the society that you're operating in. So I remember, I did my undergraduate education at the University of Toronto. And I majored in linguistics, and we had a guest lecturer. It was a new professor in the department who was an international professor, as most of the teaching faculty at U of T are. And so they spoke English with a non-native accent, and I don't even remember like what continent they were from. But that professor had previously worked 
in the United States at a university in, I think, Indiana. And she was talking about how amazed she was when she came to Toronto. And she did have a pretty pronounced accent and that none of the students seemed to care. And it didn't seem to cause a problem at all because previously at the small school that she taught at in Indiana, she was just getting absolutely destroyed on her reviews because the students couldn't understand her because of her accent. And obviously, there is a big demographic difference between the students at the University of Toronto and the students at a small university in Indiana. Maybe that's a bit mean to say, but I feel like living in the Midwest, I can say that. So that's an example of how, okay, how much of it was the accent and how much of it was, you know, what are people used to hearing? Now, on the flip side, it is challenging for us to parse accents and things that we aren't familiar hearing, you know, think about if you have learned a, new, a, a second language. And when you first start learning that language, like it's really hard for you to understand what people are saying. And as you become more proficient in it, your, you know, your ability to understand your comprehension improves. And so, you know, in a very diverse society, there's a higher, like in a city like Toronto, there'd be a very high expectation that people can, you know, process accents because you hear them all the time. There's so much linguistic diversity in Toronto. But if you go to a different part of the country where there isn't as much linguistic diversity, the people who live in that place, their brains like literally don't have the cells to process, you know, more diversity of language than what they hear on TV, probably. So it is going to be harder. Something else I've heard with the clients that I work with here is, you know, someone I'll talk with and, you know, we might be the same age and clearly have an accent, but, you know, no problem from where I'm sitting. But they'll say, you know, I don't have a problem so much with my peers at work, but it's the senior executives that can't understand me. And is it, well, those, you know, senior executives just aren't being as patient and they need to learn to be more open and understanding? Or is it that the hair cells in their ears are deteriorating (laughs) and they literally physically don't have the ability to process, you know, again, more diversity of signals or just signals that they aren't used to having. They're, They're already having to work harder just to understand people with the same accent as them, let alone someone different. Hmm. So, you know, where do you make the judgment call there? And, okay, so because and I want to say something uh, for the sake of our listeners as well, who might be interpreting things a certain way, because I'm pretty sure that's not what you mean. But what I'm hearing is that there may actually be genuine biological reasons that make it difficult for someone to be able to understand someone with an accent different from theirs in English. Which is not an excuse to say that, well, that's, they shouldn't try or, well, then, you know, the other person with that accent has to change. But it, I guess in the spirit of inclusion, um, it is truly, well, it might really genuinely be harder for some people to be able to understand accents than for other people. Would that be a fair summary of what you're, what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I think both, I think we have to be just be aware that both things are true, right? So, okay. you know, people absolutely need to work harder to understand speech patterns they're not as familiar with you know, laziness, or I haven't had to do this before, is not an excuse and not a reason to tell someone they need to change so that your life is easier. Right. On the flip side, I think to assume that a person who is saying, I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time understanding you is just because they're being lazy or just because they don't care. That is also, you know, making an assumption about someone that maybe could be a little bit kinder. And both things could be going on, right? The person might have more ability to learn and they could put in a little more work but ultimately, they may also be limited in some ways. They're outside of their control. Got it. Okay. So, you know, I think that actually is a good lead-in to talking about how we can be supportive of each other. 
Because I, I think, and you can correct me, that the proportion of people in, let's just say in, in, in the U.S. or in Canada, who have either a speech problem or, I guess, some kind of neurodiversity, right, that they might want to change or, or not, but it's just a diverse way of speaking, let's call it, that there's more, I guess, North American native English speakers that don't have speech problems than there are people, than there, there are the opposite. Would, would that be true? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, on paper, yes. I think if you look at our statistical studies, I will certainly say, because I work with, you know, the folks we work with are called, we call them subclinical sometimes. I think if a lot more people knew the variety of speech and language and communication, you know, diagnoses or disorders that are out there, a lot more people would realize like, oh, wait, I actually am not quite like everyone else. I am having a harder time. But we don't have studies of those people. So I think, yes, it's safe to say that the majority sort of has a standard way of doing things. Okay, I think that's fair. Um, and because I would never have thought to come to you for help before, like when I was starting out at the firm, and I was told, you know, speak louder, speak slower, and, and so forth, I would just be like, oh, I, there's, to be honest, it would be like, okay, well, my performance is going to be affected if I don't do this, I have to do things the business way. And maybe that in itself is, you know, a whole other thing that needs to be discussed. But okay, so if we assume that there's sort of the majority that everyone's trying to conform to. How can we be more understanding and supportive for the people that are not necessarily in that majority or have been told, well, this isn't really working out for you or they want to change something? What do you see works best from a, from a coworker for a community perspective? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, it's funny because on the one, like part of me wants to take it in a really like interesting and scientific and social yeah, social theory direction. Yeah, go for it. And then the other part of me is like, just be patient and listen more. Mm. Um, <laughs> which is, well, you know, in in some of the different um, disability communities I'm in, like that's that's literally it. Is like, be willing to take a little extra time because you know maybe the person needs a little extra time to get their thoughts together or to have the words come out of their mouth, or you know maybe because something about the way they talk or something about the way that you hear or something in the middle of that causes you to need to ask for clarification that's okay. You know, that can be okay. So, you know, taking a little more time, being a little more patient. Something else that I have found helpful and just from the work that I'm able to do. So a lot of the the inclusion work that we do is going into companies and doing trainings on topics sort of intersecting with inclusion and communication. And a big part of what we do is teaching people about the science of communication, the different parameters of communication. So things like voice, and articulation and how articulation of your physical sounds is different from the words that you're choosing. Those are two very different processes. And in each of these parameters, you know, you can operate at a high level or a low level or, you know, sort of a lot of detail or a little bit of detail. And adjusting all these parameters has really different effects. And I often use the analogy of a sound mixing board, right? You can dial things up and down. And when people start to understand Oh, it's not that, you know, so-and-so is a bad speaker, so-and-so is a good speaker, so-and-so is a powerful speaker. It's what is the individual parameter that that person is tapping into and they're adjusting in a certain direction to create a certain effect. I think that both empowers people to, to be more aware of why they're reacting to the way people talk, both either positively or negatively in a certain direction, and also to have more patience for people who, you know, maybe because of something that is sort of a biological process, they're going to be here on this parameter, but you can appreciate other things that they're doing in other areas to have the general effect that's being asked for. So a lot of it, yeah, just sort of awareness, I suppose, awareness, listening, patience. Okay. 
So maybe you have an example of um, on the employer side, because I think you, you've got this unique perspective where you'll probably, you can hear from both the employer and the employee, because sometimes it'll be the employer who contacts you and says, hey, I would like you to work with my employee, Bob, on this. So yeah, is there maybe an example of that where someone hasn't been as aware or as patient? They might think that they have, like they're very aware of what the problem is, and they've been so patient up to this point. But when you get into it, actually, that's not the case because they haven't been aware of this. Yeah, is there an example of that you could share to help us understand? Yeah, let me try to think um, off off the top of my head. So I, yeah, I do work in an interesting space where I get to see both sides because employers, when they're asking for things of their employees, or they're giving performance reviews, and they'll give you like the most, you know, useless feedback ever. And they'll either say they want the employee to be doing something. Well, often they'll sort of say they want them to be more something. Um, This is very subjective, whatever, right? Like, you know, you need to, you know, you need to be more assertive. It's like, yeah. I, I've heard uh, they need more executive presence, mm. whatever the heck that means. Yes, exactly. Usually I think that means you need to be more like a white man, but yeah, so I think that's what they mean by executive presence. Exactly. And so, you know, and so executive presence, you know, so I would say, okay, so employer, what do you mean by that? And what are you seeing happen that you think is because the person doesn't have enough executive presence? Well, you know, they're always getting talked over in meetings. Okay. So that's an interesting piece of information. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, I'll, kind of, and I'll, I'll go with the employer's train of thought for a while. So when are they talking? What types of conversations are happening? And, and sort of what is the moment at which they're getting talked over? Be like, well, you know, they're just giving information and, you know, it might be so they're, they're too quiet. I'm like, okay, so volume is something. That's a concrete piece of information for me. Or, you know, they just talk on and on. And I'm like, oh, okay, so maybe they're giving, they're just sort of going on and on. And actually the information they're giving isn't relevant. Or, you know, they just do a really good job, but, you know, their manager is just a really outspoken, impulsive person and they need to learn to have them. I'm like, okay, well, actually, that sounds like the manager is the one I should be working with, not the employee. So it's a lot about asking questions to identify what is actually happening in these moments of communication where I can start to identify and catalog the behaviors. And are those behaviors that the employee can improve? Because often there are some things like that. And often it is more junior employees who are getting referred. And so it might be something like, okay, yeah, you know, when you're presenting information, you know, you are giving more than is necessary. So we're going to teach you how to pare down to just the key points so that you don't lose your listener's attention. That's a good skill to know. But on the flip side, if it's because you're, you just have a rude manager who's always cutting you off and interrupting, maybe we need to talk to the manager directly, or sometimes it can be self-advocacy. So a big strategy that we'll use is you know, working with our individual clients on learning about communication, and then, okay, how can we now give this information to the people that you work with, so that they're more aware of what's going on in a moment. And I realize you asked for a specific example, and that's not really a specific example. I got a little That's okay. Yeah. No, like, I think those are, that's probably more than one specific example, actually. So yeah, I think that's helpful. And maybe as you know, our listeners are hearing this too, they can think of examples that they've encountered at work. And I welcome people to to share and, and add in the comments too. Like, what what is it that you've encountered? Where like, you know, that's not really something that is my specific problem, or is even maybe my problem at all. But somebody wants me to change this, and this is actually just a part of who I am. I know I've had to go through even getting to a place of like, what's okay for me? So I'm I'm short, and I used to wear heels, but they don't make me comfortable, and I'm tired of doing it really just to make myself taller for other people. I'm not. I can't wear one foot high in heels, right? 
And I can only talk so loudly uh, because my lungs are only so big. So I'm sure that if I worked with you, Katie, you'd probably be other techniques you could teach me that I could project a bit more. But at the end of the day, I'd rather just hold a mic and not have to like shout because that doesn't feel comfortable. And that's not going to make me a good presenter either. Yeah. So yeah, I think uh, something I'm hearing too is how I can be uh, supportive of other people is to not jump and put labels on things right away, like not say you're too quiet, or you're too loud, but to put a little bit more context, think about the person's even size and physiology. And you know, is this even something that's necessary for me to change? Is there something I can adapt? And also is if there is something that would be more helpful to the person for their success, and I don't mean, you know, rising up the ladder success, but just for them to be heard better, then what is the actual, you know, action or behavior that we think would be helpful, not a label or kind of a stereotype that we put on them. Yeah. And I think that example you gave of your own personal experience is really great as well, because that speaks to flexibility and honoring the individual values of the speaker, right? So in the example you gave, sort of the functional issue was not being heard. So people in the room want to hear you and you want to be heard by other people. Someone who tells you, you're too quiet, they're putting that label on you and making it all about you. Mm. And you're saying, okay, well, okay, so maybe yes, there's something about my voice that it can't quite carry to the back of a 500 person room. So yes, I could go to work with some vocal specialist and do all kinds of exercises and practice to be louder. Or I could use a microphone. And that is your choice to make because both of those will be just as effective. And for the people that you work with to be able to say, you know, I would like to use a microphone when I speak, I find that's helpful for myself in the audience versus someone telling you, you need to go change this particular thing in this particular way. Okay, that's, that's really affirming. Uh, and I'm, I hope that employers out there would also be understanding of that to be able to say, well, you know, if we need a microphone for someone, it's not really any different for, you know, needing a button on the door, right? For someone who's in a wheelchair and can't open the door themselves. Like, how can we be accommodating to make our employees as successful as possible and and feel as valued and welcome as possible in the workplace? So yeah, I'm glad that you think that that's actually a good example. Katie, this has been so interesting and enjoyable for me. I've learned a lot. I could go on and on forever, but you've already been so generous with your time. I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing some of these perspectives that certainly I don't get to see every day. Thank you for changing my lens and hopefully the lenses of our listeners. That's definitely the goal of this podcast. So before we go or before we let you go, any particular closing thoughts or you know, what's most prevalent on your heart right now? Like, is there any, if there's any final thought that you wanted to leave us with or any final action you wanted us to take, what would that be? Ooh, such a big question. <laughs> no pressure. I think maybe carrying on some themes from this conversation, I think maybe just understanding and really reflecting on the value of flexibility. I think what's challenging about an inclusion in a workplace context is, you know, we do have all these different people with individual needs coming together. And certainly there are power structures and historical reasons that, you know, have privileged certain groups and given a lot of power to certain groups and, and you know, violently taken power away from other groups. But with something like communication, where I think communication is so foundational to so many of these inclusion issues that get talked about, but it's kind of in the background. And so as more and more conversations are being had about these really, you know, important in, in like giant issues like race and gender, some of the how of how we get to navigating those and start to repair and restore some of those relationships is going to be about communication. And there's a lot more to the communication part than I think people realize sometimes. 
So I think willing to be generous and to really pay attention in a particular moment to what is actually happening, to who is doing what and to who is thinking what. You know, communication is a skill that you never finish, right? Like it's one of those things that you're you're never done. Like you can, all of us, myself included, right? We can always improve on it and will be improving on it and evolving and changing throughout our life. And as we strive to be inclusive, we are all paying attention to how we want things to change and other people to change, but we're going to change as well. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that we're giving in to, you know, problematic structures that we're trying to overturn. It can be a process of self-discovery. So that was a little not as concise as I wanted it to be, but I'll stop there. <laughs> Thank you. That's um, great thoughts to leave us with uh, to reflect on as we as we go from here. So really appreciate that. Really appreciate your time again, Katie. And just a reminder for everyone who's listening to this podcast that if you want to find out more and learn more about communication and speech or just about Katie and all the great work that she does, you can find her on her website, which is speechirl.com. And if you are like me, who's not really with it, IRL stands for in real life. So speechirl.com. You can also find them on all the usual social media outlets, uh, Facebook and Twitter. And uh, I think on their blog, you have a, uh, I'm sorry, on your website, you have a blog, Katie. What, what are some of the things that you talk about in your blog? Yeah, we're, uh, we're kind of all over the place, much like the work that we do. Um, so some of our topics are very communication centric. So uh, I think this week or this month, we had a piece on how to have small talk, which is a very popular, uh, I would say, quote unquote, lesson that we do with our clients is, you know, people hate small talk. And that's pretty normal, but it's a pretty formulaic thing to do if you know the formula. So we put that up there. And then we also have articles about things more related to diversity and inclusion and equity, but from a communication standpoint. So um, how to say the right thing in 2020 or how to not say the wrong thing in 2020. And then things about speech pathology as well, if there's any folks interested in that field or sort of that area of practice. So yeah, take a gander. Very cool. I need to read that small talk one because I hate it as well. I've learned it out of necessity. I don't even know if I've learned it, but I need to do it. So I will definitely check that out. We actually have uh, postcards we made that are the small talk menu. It's literally like if you're going to a wedding and you're like, oh, oh small yeah. talk with people I don't know. And it's like, it's literally on a postcard. It's like how to have a small talk conversation and keep it going. It's just because it's it's literally that formulaic and people don't realize it. And once you sort of realize the formula and that it's just a game, you just wow. keep the game wherever you're going. Okay. Well, once we're all released from our coronavirus prison, then we have to go <laughs> yeah, to yeah. the 300 person weddings again. I am definitely printing that out and taking that with me. Thanks for that. Yes, because we'll all have lost our small talk skills because we haven't right. been mingling for like three years. We won't know how to talk to strangers anymore. We can only talk to five people at a time. That's right. Thanks so much, Katie. It was a pleasure having you here. I really enjoyed our chat and I uh, learned a lot. So thank you. Thank you so much, Rosie. Thanks for joining us. I hope today's episode helped to change your lens and expand your worldview. If you enjoyed listening, Please rate and subscribe to Changing Lenses, available wherever you get your favorite podcast. For more about how I'm changing my lens, please check out my website at changinglenses.ca. You'll also find the show notes and transcripts for each episode, and you can leave comments or questions or send me a message. I would love to hear from you. I'm Rosie Young, inviting you to join me for the next episode of Changing Lenses. Until then, take care.